The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. This morning, it's interesting to be here without you in the room. I miss seeing your faces. My wife sits right down there on 930, and my friend Shadrach and Vanessa are right back there. And over here, it's like Elder Row. There's uh, the Hagans and the Webbers and the Maturis and the Smiths and the Skags. But I, but I know you're joining with us online, and I'm grateful that you are. And we're going to be in John chapter 12. We're going to be in John chapter 12. We're in the final week. Last week, Pastor Dave walked us through Palm Sunday, and we were grateful to look in the Word and, and remember where that final week started. So today we'll be kind of in Monday or Tuesday, and in John chapter 12, as we talk through, the hour has come. The hour has come. We're going to be in John 12, 20 through 36. Before we get into our, our main text, I do want to say these, these times are hard for everybody. And I, I do want to speak to this fact that in the midst of the hard times, you have always been a generous church, a giving church as attested to by, by the fact that we can do this live stream today, that we're able to put this on, and then that this week and next week, TBC is going to give over 1,400 meals out to vulnerable families in our city, and we're grateful for that. With our inability to meet, what I would encourage you to do, if you're able, we would love for you to continue to give what you regularly give. Again, if, if you're able, you can do that online through our website, templebiblechurch.org, at the hub, you can do that. You can also do that in our Creekside building, just inside the entrance to the left. There's a box that you can give at, and we've got hand sanitizer in that, right, not in the box, but right by the box. So if you're able, we would be grateful if you can continue to give as you regularly do. Let's look in the Word of God together. We'll start in John 12, verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks or some, some Gentiles. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went, and he told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. God, we thank you for this truth, for this reminder that in the kingdom of God, that life comes through death, that treasure comes through giving away, and that if we lay our lives down, we pick up eternal life. So God, as we look today together in a, a new way for us, God, as we gather not in one building, but all across Central Texas, Father, would you teach us from your word and would you shape our lives by it? We need you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we, as we start this morning in the final week, and as we start in John 12, the first thing that we're going to see 
is a request from Gentiles. It's a request that these Greeks make. They come and they ask Philip, we wish to see Jesus. Now, it's an interesting thing to me that they ask Philip because Philip is from a fishing town called Bethsaida, and Bethsaida is right at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And right at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, where Bethsaida is, it's bordered by the Decapolis, this Gentile region. And I don't know if Philip had an accent and they could tell where he is from because of his accent. Most people know I'm from the Northeast because of my accent. Maybe they knew because of his accent. Maybe it's because Philip is not a Jewish name. It's a Greek name. And so because he had a Greek name, maybe they knew he is one of the guys that we should come to. And so Philip gets Andrew, another guy with a Greek name, and they come and they say, these people want to see you. And the way it's worded, we wish to see Jesus, the tense would indicate that it's a continuous thing. They're asking over and over and over. And their asking really makes perfect sense because Jesus is about to die. See, what we studied when we were studying Abraham that first week is that that God called Abraham to go to a new place. And he says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So their asking makes perfect sense, but his answer doesn't initially seem to address what they're thinking, though he will speak to Jew and Gentile alike soon enough. See, God's servant, we're told in Isaiah 49, verse 6, is going to be a light to the nations. He says, it's too small a thing that you would be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light to the nation so that my salvation can reach to the ends of the earth. And that's what's about to happen. But Jesus doesn't give them a direct answer. It hasn't happened yet. He is the Messiah of the Jews. He's going to be the Savior of the world. And so he says to them this phrase, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And the people aren't going to understand that this is the time that the nations will be blessed, that God will be glorified. See, over and over and over in the book of John, as people would be healed by Jesus or taught by Jesus, he would say, my hour has not yet come, and there's been this anticipation, when will the hour come? Well, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. See, nobody could have imagined that the coronation would be through crucifixion. That's how the hour would come, that he would get a crown that's a crown of thorns. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, what does it mean that the Son of Man is going to be glorified? That's an interesting phrase that John uses twice in the passage that we'll look at today. And what John is doing is quoting Daniel. Jesus is giving a reference that Jewish people would have known in this day. Daniel has a vision of the end of days, and he says in Daniel 7, 13, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And so Jesus says the son of man is going to be glorified. So for hundreds of years since Babylonian captivity, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. 
This is the hour that's come. All peoples and all nations are coming. They're saying we wish to see Jesus. And his dominion, Daniel says, will be an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And it's happening. It's happening. And I'll tell you, church, right now, I would say is this moment where there are people who are suffering, there are people who are in pain, and we're seeing it. And, and I believe the cry of their heart is, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. And our opportunity now is to help them see him. So what does it mean for the Son of Man to be glorified? What does it mean for this Messiah that Moses and Zipporah, Hannah and Samuel and David and Isaiah and Elijah lived and died waiting to see? What does it mean for him to be glorified? See, there's a request from Gentiles, and then, then there's a lesson from nature. And so Jesus says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so what Jesus is sharing is, is a picture of multiplication in life. And the picture of multiplication is something that we understand clearly. A good stalk of wheat has about 20 grains on it. And if those 20 grains fall to the ground and die, if they're planted, they can make 400 grains. And if those 400 fall to the ground and die, they can make 8,000 grains. And if those 8,000 fall to the ground and die, they can make 160,000 grains. And if those 160,000 grains fall to the ground and die, they can make 3.2 million grains. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And the death of Jesus Christ is going to bear much fruit as he will bring many people in from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Unless it falls into the ground and dies, it bears much fruit when it dies. See, it's a, it's a lesson that we understand, and it's a lesson that Greeks would have understood from their fertility cults, but it's also a lesson that the Jewish people would have understood over and over and over. In rabbinical literature, there's this metaphor that's used of a grain of wheat falling to the ground as a symbol of resurrection in the end times. And in captivity in Babylon, in the Talmud, in Sanhedrin 43, it was said, if a grain of wheat which is buried naked sprouts forth in many robes, how much more the righteous who are buried in their raiment. It's so paradoxical to say, but the Jews had heard it over and over and over. If you love your life, you will lose it. And if you hate your life, you get to keep it to eternal life. It's similar to Mark chapter 8. In Mark 8, 34 through 37, Jesus calls the crowd to him with his disciples. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? See, in, in times like these, when there is a little bitty bug that is sweeping through the nations, we come to understand that the prosperity gospel doesn't make a lot of sense. 
See, health and wealth are, are great foundations when you're healthy and when the market's doing okay. I was talking to a friend this week that reminded me when, say, there's a global pandemic and the markets are crashing, we're reminded that health and wealth are great gifts from God, but they are not great foundations. To see a, a crucified and risen Jesus, that's a great foundation. The one who says he will supply all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. We have hope with him not only in this life, but in the life to come. He's a strong foundation, and today we need a strong foundation. See, Jesus says whoever loses his life will keep it to life eternal, but who would save his life, he's going to lose it. That's verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. To serve Jesus is to follow him, and to follow him is to go where he goes, which means both laying down our lives and then receiving eternal life. There's the privilege of eternal life. There's the responsibility of laying down our lives. Whoever loses his life will keep it for eternal life. They'll keep it for eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says it this way that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. So we don't live anymore except by faith in the Son of God because we have been crucified. We've been crucified, and then Jesus makes this amazing statement, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. So he is about to tell these people that he's going to die, and he's going to rise from the dead, and he says, if you would serve me, you must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. And that's the beauty of following Jesus. That means that you are with him, you're in his presence. And then if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, can you imagine that? That the God who made the heavens will honor those who follow Jesus. He will honor those who serve him. The Greek word is, is to me say, it's to honor, to be held in high regard. And so to honor, that happens in a, in a couple of ways. One, there will be these heavenly rewards that come to those who follow Christ that we lay at his feet as our rewards. I have some, some friends that are TBCers named Harold and Michelle, and Harold and Michelle serve vulnerable people. They do it consistently. They do it all the time. And I got a text about a week and a half ago from Foster Love Bell County saying, we are honoring Harold and Michelle as our foster loves of the month. Can you just send some words about them? And it was my privilege to say, here's what they do in caring for vulnerable people. That's one way that we're honored, we're recognized, but then sometimes the work itself is the honor. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So sometimes the work itself is the honor. It's like when Peter and John, after Jesus rose from the dead, they go and they see a lame man by the temple and they heal him. And people tell them, stop talking about Jesus. The leaders say, stop talking about this Jesus. And they say, what should we do? Follow God or man for their salvation and no one else. There's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved except the name Jesus. And so they're beaten and they're cast out. 
And it says in Acts chapter 4 that they counted it joy that they were considered worthy to suffer for his name. See, that was the honor. He who serves me will be honored by my Father. Sometimes the honor is in the service itself, and sometimes it's in that we look to eternal things and not temporal things. But do you believe that those who serve Jesus will be honored by the Father? Do you believe it? See, there's a request from from the Gentiles. There's a request from the Gentiles, and then there's an example from nature, and then next there is an expression of humanity. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come into this hour. Father, glorify your name. What an amazing thing for Jesus to say. Now my soul is troubled. See, Jesus is going to tell the disciples in John 14.1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. But just a few moments before, he says, my soul is troubled. His soul is troubled because of what he's about to bear. He's about to bear the sins of the world. It's not troubled by the cloud of flies that are going to buzz around the cross as he is dying for the sins of the world. He's not troubled by his torn back pressed up against that beam. He's not troubled by nails ripping through his wrist. He's troubled because he's never sinned. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that in him we could become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus is troubled because he is about to bear the sins of the world. And here's what I want you to hear. In this moment, in this season, you see this disease that is ravaging the world and your soul is troubled. And it's okay for your soul to be troubled. But it's not okay for your soul to stay troubled. Jesus says, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say then? Father, save me from this hour. See, his soul doesn't stay troubled. He says, but for this purpose, I have come in to this hour. In this most uncertain time, there's this reality that when we, we see times like this, we wish they wouldn't come. But when they come, we want to be men and women of Jesus, reflecting the love and truth of Jesus to the world around us who need hope and help in Jesus. And so I got to tell you, church, you were made for this moment. We were made for this moment, church, to rise up loving people in Jesus' name and sharing the good news of a crucified and risen Savior. See, there's a request from Gentiles. Then there's an example from nature. Then there's an expression of humanity. And then there's a declaration from heaven. Father, glorify your name. That's what Jesus prays. Glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. God had glorified his name through the life of Jesus Christ and he's going to glorify his name through the death and resurrection of his son. I have glorified it and I will. And the crowd stood and they were amazed. They heard it and some thought it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus says, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. 
This voice has come for your sake, not for mine, because God's name will be glorified. He says it, I will glorify it again. See, the prophet Isaiah, God had spoken through him centuries before saying, turn to me and be saved, you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And the ends of the earth are about to turn to Jesus Christ to be saved and the Father will be glorified. The Father will be glorified. So then Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. These are two of the most profound doctrines of the Christian faith, and these two phrases in one verse. Now is the judgment of the world, and now will the ruler of the world be cast out. In this one verse, we have these two profound doctrines of substitutionary atonement and Christus Victor. Substitutionary atonement is this. It's that Jesus Christ took the full punishment that we deserved for our sins as a substitute in our place. That's substitutionary atonement. See, judgment is coming on the world, Jesus says. Now the world is judged. But that judgment that's coming on the world is going to be laid on the back of Jesus Christ. When he is on the cross for you and for me, the judgment of God, the full bore wrath of God falls on him for the sins of all humanity, for all the brokenness of the world, we fail to understand the profundity of the fall. And it's all about to fall on Jesus in judgment from the Father. That's substitutionary atonement. And Jesus said of this atonement, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He did this willingly. Now is the judgment of the world. That's substitutionary atonement. And now will the ruler of this world be cast out, Hasatan, the accuser. That's Christus Victor. Christus Victor is the element of the atoning work of Christ that emphasizes the triumph of Christ over the evil powers of the world through which he rescues his people. He establishes a new relationship between God and the world. Judgment is coming on the world and the judgment will fall on Jesus. And the ruler of the world is about to be cast out. First John 3, 8 says that the son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus Christ came. He came to destroy the works of the devil. So it's not only atonement for our sins, which is amazing. But there's a work that was wrought in the fall that brought things like disease, things like decay, things like pain, things like COVID-19, and Jesus Christ, his death on the cross was the death blow to that enemy, and we can know that one day, for all those who are in Christ, there will be no more cancer, there will be no more struggle with sin, there will be no more COVID-19 or whatever the next bug might be, because Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, and through his death and resurrection, destroy them he will. That's the reason the Son of God appeared. See, in this statement, in this statement of substitutionary atonement, in this statement of Christus Victor, there's also a statement that reminds us of the first gospel, the proto-evangelium in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve took those bites of fruit. 
And when destruction came into the world, God cursed the serpent. He cursed the accuser. And here's what he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And in the bruising of Jesus' heel on the cross, the head of the serpent is going to be crushed. Now is the judgment of the world. And now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And Jesus is telling the people how it's going to be accomplished. Verse 32 He says, and when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. He's telling them as he's told the rulers, as he's told his disciples, he is the savior of the world. He is the Christ. And now both Jews and Gentiles, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And verse 33 says that he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He said it to show by what kind of death he was going to die, and the people are confused by it. See, Jesus has already told this to Nicodemus. In in John chapter 3, 14, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. See, in Israel's history, there was this time when the people of God sinned, and serpents as punishment were sent into the camp. Many people were bitten, they were sick, and many were dying, and this bronze serpent is put up on a pole, and it's put there so that whoever looks to the serpent lives. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, even as the serpent was lifted up or the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man be lifted up, and if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. He says in John 3, 15, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But the people are confused. The crowd answered. They said, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? See, they've heard Jesus say, the son of man will be glorified. They've heard that he's speaking of himself. And they They're thinking back again to this Daniel verse in Daniel 17 or 713. I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And here he is. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and and he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. That's why they say we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Why are you saying the Son of Man should be lifted up? He's going to have an everlasting dominion. His kingdom will never be destroyed. But what they don't understand is that it's in the cross of Jesus. It's in the death of Christ. It's in his resurrection through which his kingdom will become an everlasting kingdom. It's in these things through which his kingdom will never be destroyed. The cross of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, remains at the center of Christian theology. See, it's not the social gospel that's at the center of Christian theology. Now, we as a church, we are going to help people because the Bible tells us that we love our neighbor and the law is fulfilled in this, that we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. 
But the social gospel is not the center of what we do. It's not Jesus being a brilliant moral teacher or a young rebel or a radical. It's Jesus, the crucified and risen king that we trust. And it's the power that's at work in Jesus Christ through the cross and resurrection that is now at work in us. And indeed, he does draw all people to himself, his death and his resurrection where he conquers death and establishes a kingdom. He's given dominion like Daniel says he will be. He's given glory like Daniel says he will be. He's given a kingdom like the prophets say he will be so that all peoples, he will draw all people to himself. All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion now is an everlasting dominion and it will not pass away and his kingdom will never be destroyed. See, there's a request from Gentiles. There's an example from nature. There's a declaration from heaven. There's an expression of humanity. And then there's a call to the light. There's a call to the light. Don't walk in darkness, Jesus says. Don't walk in darkness. The light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. You know how this works. If you wake up in the middle of the night and your house is pitch black, you want a light on. You want to see where you're going. You want to see how to get there. But if, but if a light's not on, you can't see where you're going. I mean, my kids can. It amazes me that they know right where my bed is and I can wake up with eyes on me just scared to death. But I don't know where I'm going if I'm trying to walk in darkness. And Jesus is giving this example to say, don't walk in darkness. Don't walk without the light. Number one, because you, you won't know where you're going. And number two, because the darkness will overtake you. And you know what? This world is full of darkness. It can be a frightening place to be. And if you don't walk in the light and if you don't trust in the light, it can be overwhelming. It can lead to despair. It can lead to pain. It can lead to being overwhelmed by our own sinfulness. But Jesus says, don't walk in darkness. You won't know where you're going. You have the light a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. See, this image of light fits in a context that is used throughout the Scripture. The first words that God spoke, he spoke in Genesis chapter 1, and he said, let there be light. Let there be light. And when the book of John begins, it's like a second Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was void and full of darkness, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That's Genesis 1. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him, Nothing was made that has been made. He was the creative word that God spoke, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't overcome it. So Jesus says, you have the light for a little while. Don't let the darkness overtake you. Walk in the light. Jesus said in John 8, verse 12, 
I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You have the light with you. Walk according to the light. John 9, 5, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And so now he tells the people who are listening, you have the light a little while longer. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. He's about to go out of this world. He's about to be crucified. He's about to raise the dead. He's about to go and be with the Father. The light will not be there much longer. And Jesus is telling the people these things so that they'll believe in him, so that they'll trust in him. We know this because John chapter 20, verse 31, tells us why the book of John was written. It says that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's why this book, John, that we're teaching from this morning was written so that whoever reads it, whoever hears it, would believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's not just the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. Do you believe that? That's the truth. These are written that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. There is life in the name of Jesus for all who believe. It's life in this world that's eternal, that's victorious, because Jesus is the victor over sin and death. It's life that's new and forgiven and free because he has taken the judgment of God on our behalf. He's atoned for our sins, and there's good news that there is life in his name. That empty shelves and fear and even a global pandemic can't take away. There is life in his name for all who believe. While you have the light, believe in the light. Why? So that you may become sons of the light. Believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. As I read that last verse, John twelve thirty six this week, I, I thought about a young man that I met. 12 or 13 years ago. Before I was on staff at Temple Bible Church, I used to travel and preach doing camps and conferences, and summers were just full of going from place to place to place. And at these camps and conferences, I would speak, and there was a, a worship team there, and there were small group leaders, and there were youth pastors, all kinds of people there to do their jobs. And then there was a rec team that would come from some little university, and they would prepare games for kids and get hot and sweaty and serve all week long. Great rec team on this particular week. And on this great rec team, there was a young man who just stood out from everybody as a servant with a bright smile, great attitude, always willing to go the extra mile. You could just tell he was bright. He was sharp. He was different than your average rec team member, if you will. One day I saw him sitting alone at lunch and I went and sat down with him and, and he sounded like he had a little bit of a funny accent, which some people might think is an odd thing for someone with my accent to say, but he did. So his name was Daniel. I said, Daniel, where, where are you from? And he told me he was from a small island nation. And, and I saw he had a scar on his hand. I said, man, what happened to your hand? He said, oh, I got that fishing. In my nation, we catch fish by putting a rope over in the ocean, and then we pull the fish in. And that's kind of how a, a guy becomes a man, by catching a certain size fish. And so I did that. And so I said, oh, is your is your dad a fisherman? He said, no, we were just doing it for fun. And it's kind of, kind of a, a rite of passage. I said, oh, is your dad a farmer? No, he's not a farmer. 
And uh, I could tell he kind of didn't want to say, I said, is your dad a teacher? I'm really interested now. Or he was such a bright guy. Is your dad maybe a pastor? I didn't know. And so finally he looked at me and he said, no, my dad's the king. I said, oh, well, hello, your highness. That was not what I was expecting. And so I began to ask him about his dad being the king. And he was a little kind of shy about talking about it. And I said, Daniel, how does a prince get on a rec team for summer camps in North Texas? And he said, well, because of the university I'm at. And he said, you know, my father, my father taught me over and over and over that really you'll never be able to lead well if you can't love and serve well. Oh, yeah, that that makes perfect sense, Daniel. That's great. Thanks, man. Well, Daniel looked at me and said, hey, we're, we're done for the day on rec team. Is there anything you need? Do you need water before you speak? Can I help you in any way? No, Prince, I'm, I'm good. And he walked off and, and there was a youth pastor sitting down a little ways and he said, I heard your conversation, but I couldn't, I couldn't hear it all. That guy is just different than anyone I've ever seen on a rec team. Why do you think that is? And I said, oh, I, I know why it is. See, He's different from everybody else on the team because he is the son of a king and he hasn't forgotten who he is. Church, I would, I would tell you that, that right now, I believe more than ever, the world needs to know that there is a people in central Texas and there's a people in central Africa and there's a people in central Asia and there's a people in central America and they're the people of God. And we as God's people, the church, we're the sons and daughters of the light. We are the children of the king, and we haven't forgotten. So in this moment, we're going to serve well, and we're going to love well, and we're going to speak well. You might be joining us today, and it may be your first time hearing about it, or maybe you've heard about it hundreds of times, and the message is here while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light, see through hope in Jesus Christ, through trusting in him, through looking at his death on the cross when he took the judgment of God for me and for you by looking at that and saying, yes, I want that to count for me. Yeah, I want to take my life in these uncertain times and I want to put my life in his hands. I want to put my yes on his table and say yes to Jesus as Savior and say yes to Jesus as king. Believe in the light so that you can become sons of the light. That's the call for you today if you don't know Christ. And church, we will get through this time together because Jesus Christ did die for our sins. He did die to destroy the works of the devil, and he did raise from the dead, and a lot of people saw him, and he will come again to set all things right. So we're going to hope in him as our savior and our king today. Would you pray with me wherever you're watching from this morning? God, we thank you that the judgment of the world has come and that judgment fell on Jesus Christ. We thank you that Jesus came and he appeared to destroy the works of the devil 
And we thank you, God, that he is, in fact, the Son of Man, and that he has been given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. He is the light. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not be taken away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And God so loved us that he sent him Jesus, his only son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. So God, we thank you for this truth of eternal life that is in Jesus. And God, we pray you'd help us to lay our lives down that we might have eternal life. God, help us to serve Jesus so that where he is, we might also be. It's an honor to serve him. Hear our prayer today, God, and be with us. We know that you will. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.